Okay. Continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, at the heart of the teaching of Jesus after he's said that he's the fulfillment of the law. So today's message, Kingdom Heart Matters. A little bit of play on words. Lips that love. Loving your neighbor with your words and your heart. So as we consider the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, there in verse 20, he says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say this is a very profound, startling statement, right? So, so what I, 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 have to, I have to come up with another law or command and add it to the 613 that are already there? Is that what Jesus is saying quantitatively? I have to have more obedience greater than the 613 commandments? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying qualitatively, your obedience needs to come from a heart that's been transformed by Jesus Christ. Jesus desires obedience arising from a pure heart. A pure heart. If you remember back in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So a pure heart is something that we don't naturally have, and we understand that. Nobody has to tell us that our our struggles are in the heart. Our failure to keep the most basic of God's commands demonstrates our absolute need for the new heart that only Jesus can give. The only way that your righteousness can surpass that of the Pharisees is if you have a heart of Jesus, the heart that he gives in the new birth. So let's pray and ask God to help us to understand what it means to have this heart and and how that works its way out in our lives. And I think this morning what we're going to look at is something we all struggle with, right? I think that's why Jesus begins with this particular commandment, right? Because this is where we live. And we struggle with it every day. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. Oh, we love him so much, our humble and gentle Savior. Father, we thank you that his yoke is not burdensome. We thank you uh, that he teaches us how to follow him and how to obey his law of love. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us now. Please work in us and teach us how to live out this law of love in a way that pleases you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, I'm assuming that's how you say it. Say how you want, Raka, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out 
until you have paid the very last penny. So as Jesus begins this heart of his teaching here, there's some confusion on the matter. And we see this in verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, right? And so the way it reads, it almost looks like Jesus is, he's kind of contradicting Moses, right? You've heard that it was said. Okay, people, their mind goes back to Moses. But I tell you, is that what Jesus is doing? Is he contradicting what Moses has taught us? Is this Jesus versus Moses? Well, the answer is no, right? For Jesus to contradict Moses would be, it'd be self-contradiction, right? He is, he is the word. And so he'd be contradicting his own teaching. So it's not Jesus versus Moses. He's not contradicting Moses. rather acknowledging that the people had been misled by the teachers of the law. So we see here, as Jesus speaks to the people, there's confusion over the source of authority. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Well, is it what was said, or is it what was written down? And again, we've talked about this. This is the problem with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, that they had the oral tradition, they had the the Mishnah, they had, um, we'll see in a second, it's called the Halakha. So they had the Torah, which is the written word, but then they had all the traditions surrounding that, the Mishnah, that were to keep them from disobeying the written word. And they had this oral tradition that, you know, scribes and Pharisees would have their debates over. They would go to their rabbi and say, what does this mean, rabbi? And he would start spouting the oral tradition. And so there was confusion over the source of authority, right? It's the oral tradition versus the written word of God. And so Jesus is trying to clear up some of this confusion. And so as we go through this, I'm going to do my points to ponder along the way. You know, are you confused? Are you focused on what the scriptures say? Are you focused on what others have to say? There are a lot of competing voices in our culture right now. I mean, just go down the list of the podcasts, the blogs, the vlogs, the influencers, not to mention all the news outlets. There are so many people, especially in the podcast world, that have a hint of Christianity. They sound good. They sound like they're Christian. Like, are you sure this person's not a Christian? It's, you know, it's like uh, Jordan Peterson. I was at a funeral one time, and this guy starts talking to me about Jordan Peterson, claiming that Jordan Peterson's a Christian. And I'm like, Jordan Peterson's not a Christian. His, his, what he says may sound good. It may make sense, because the truth that he says that makes sense is coming from God. It's God's truth. But the man's not a Christian. Okay, so there's lots of people out there that they borrow truth from the Bible, and it sounds good because it's God's truth. Okay, and, and, and we, have to, we have to weed through, okay, this is what people are saying, but what does the Word of God say? And even as you sit here in, 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 the, in the auditorium and listen to Sam or listen to myself or Jason or whoever, right, the Scripture tells us, according to Acts, that you listen to the Word of God, you listen to it preached, and you go back and check and make sure that that's what's written. Is that what God really said? And so that's Jesus' point right now. Is that really... What you're, what you're thinking right now, what I'm about to address, is this really what God said, or is this what your oral tradition says that God said? Because there was confusion over the sinfulness of the action, confusion over the source of authority, but now confusion over the sinfulness of the action, right? Look at the text. You've heard it said that it was, you've heard it, heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. King James has not kill. 
And that's really kind of a, an unfortunate uh, word there because it means murder, right? If you were to put kill there, well, you shouldn't go to war, right? Because you can't kill somebody. I mean, can you kill an animal to eat it? Okay, so the issue is murder. It's, it's the unlawful, unjust taking of another life. So you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment, right? So really there's this bringing together of, of two different um, laws given by Moses to the people concerning murder and the consequences of it. And they had reduced it to, as long as you haven't murdered somebody, like literally just taken their life, then you're free, right? I'm unclear on this one because I've got no murders on my rap sheet. I've never been taken to court for murder. I've never been, you know, convicted of murder. So, hey, I'm good in this one. So when it comes to righteousness, got this one down. Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. Murder is simply the outward manifestation of a heart full of hate. Murder is just the result of of a heart that's perhaps wounded or a greedy heart or an angry heart or a vengeful heart or an envious heart or a jealous heart. See, all these things lead to the taking of another life, and it begins in the heart. I think John MacArthur is helpful here as he states this. He says, it is possible for a person who has never been involved in so much as a fistfight to have a more murderous spirit than a serial killer. Many people, in the deepest feelings of their hearts, have anger and hatred to such a degree that their true desire is for the hated person to be dead. The fact that fear, cowardice, or lack of opportunity does not permit them to take that person's life does not diminish their guilt before God, right? People have this hate in their heart. They cannot stand that person. They're either envious or jealous or they've been hurt by that person, and they want them dead. But the only thing that keeps them from that is circumstances, opportunity, fear of of, of punishment. They have that hatred in their heart. And so Jesus wants to clear up the confusion, so he offers a clarification here in verse 22. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry, and again here the King James says without cause, That's in addition to the text that came many, many years after the original was written. But I tell you that anyone who is angry. So what's wrong with anger? I would say, I mean, it is true that anger is really is a gift from God, right? If somebody is opposing the will of God and you're trying to accomplish the will of God and you have this negative internal response in your heart, that's appropriate anger. And anytime I talk about anger... People begin to justify why they're angry at this person, why they're angry at that person, or why angry was appropriate. It may be the case. And maybe you're not like me. Maybe you don't struggle with the type of anger that's being addressed here. But the anger that's in view here, this negative response of the heart when a perceived standard has not been met, is a deep-seated animosity that seethes. Right? There's fire thrown into your heart, and that fire, it, it just it may not blow up right away, but it's in there, and it's burning, and it's growing. It's the long-lived anger over which a person broods and nurses, and it will not die. It's an anger that's fanned by the person, from a smoldering ember to a raging fire of bitterness and resentment. We actually work in our heart to keep that fire going. 
because we start thinking about reasons. This is why we begin, we're justifying. I am right in my anger at this person for this reason, that reason, and that reason, and that reason. You're just fanning the flames of anger within your heart. And typically the problem is, is that we don't have indication, we don't have indignation or anger over God's law being broken, that the glory of God has been compromised. No, we're angry because our glory has been compromised. We're angry because somebody else has belittled who we are as a person. And how dare you do that, even if there's a little bit of truth in there. And so as you think about your anger, think about the people that you get angry with. Now, as I look at you this morning and I see your smiling faces, I know that none of you get angry at other people in this room, in the body of Christ. But that never happens amongst Christians. Well, ladies, when you go through the book of Philippians, you'll find out that it does happen in churches. And God has an answer to it. But Paul tells us, he says, look at the people that it's happening among. He says, but I tell you that anyone is angry with what? A brother or a sister. He says it again, a brother or a sister. That it's within the body of God's people that this anger is manifest in such a way that people want another person dead. Right, we get the anger on I-94, trying to get through there at, at I-10 and I-96 by Wayne State in the afternoon. We get that kind of anger. And we've all been there. And we've all wanted the other driver dead, right? We've had that in our heart. But Jesus is addressing right now, so, so he addresses this in Matthew, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, around verse 43. Right now he's addressing within the body of Christ. Remember all those forms of anger that I mentioned earlier? Jealousy, envy, greed. Those things that lead us to having this murderous spirit. Well, Jesus is reminding us about that, that it's within the body of Christ, right? That not just our enemies are being murdered, but those that we call brother or sister. And he also tells us that our mouths reveal the condition of our heart, right? We can keep that anger down for a while. We've all been there. Like, you know, you, you're slighted, and you're like, okay, push it aside. You don't really push it aside. You kind of just, yeah, okay, we'll move that over to spot, you know. Then you get slighted again, and, okay, I'm, I can deal with this. Then you get slighted again. Oh, man. And then how, how is it finally revealed most of the time, first, how is, it most, how is it revealed? It's revealed as you open your mouth, as you begin to speak. You reveal the anger that's in your heart. Most of us are going to walk, walk up and like smash somebody. It's, we start talking. Our mouths reveal the condition of our heart. And you guys are familiar. This is common in Scripture. Your mouth is a heart monitor. James 3, 9 through 12. With the tongue we praise our Lord and our Father. And with it, we curse human beings. James is talking to the church. Praising God on Sunday morning. Got your hands up. And you've got this hatred in your heart towards somebody. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Grapevine bear figs, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So 
Out of the mouth, we'll see, comes the overflow of the heart. And amongst brothers and sisters, they may not be said necessarily, but it's being thought. There's this conversation going on in your head. Raka! There's a lot written about these, this conception, or this, this word raka. What does it really mean? Yeah. You're belittling, most people say you're belittling a person's mental strength. You're such a dimwit, you bonehead. You can't connect the dots, can you? What's up with you, man? Raka! And then he says, you fool. Those who want to make a distinction between raka and fool would say, fool, you're attacking a person's moral substance and their personal value. God made a mistake with you, man. And God's perfect, but he had a bad day when he made you. Like, there's something wrong with you. You might think of the fool in Proverbs a little bit. They hear the word of God and they reject it. Some commentaries just say that, that, that Jesus is kind of bringing them together to say, you can't curse a brother and say that you love them as you're called to love them. And when you do curse them, you've murdered them in your heart. Jesus has in mind the deliberate and malicious belittling of a person's dignity as a human being. He's describing demeaning, denigrating, disdain, or contempt for another person. You know, we're little, you guys heard that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Who came up with that lie? I mean, what, what, I would say, <laughs> I would say, what fool came up with that? <laughs> I mean, you know, as you get older, you develop a thicker skin, you're like, whatever, you know. But words can be very painful. Scripture tells us that you can murder somebody with your urge, right? The, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. Words can murder. We can assassinate somebody's character with our words. When we tear somebody down with our words, what have we done? If you're in a group of people and you tear down somebody with your words, you've demeaned their character, their, their value, and the person that everybody once knew, right? everybody's in the group, they're listening to you tear this person down, and who that person once was in the eyes of these people is no longer there. They've been murdered. They have a new concept of this person based on your words. They pierce like a sword. They're reckless. And again, Jesus says, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. Those defile them, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder. That's the first one he lists. Adultery. Okay, and on and on. So the issue for Jesus is an issue of heart. And he says, beware, because he warns us that a murderous heart can lead to severe judgment. Look how he writes this. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, what will be subject to judgment? This is God's judgment. Will be answerable to the court, the Sanhedrin. Well, that's not as bad, right? So if you call them Raka, they only go to the Sanhedrin, so it's not as bad. Well, who gives the Sanhedrin authority? God does. And then he says, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That word for hell there is Gehenna, right? On the south side of Jerusalem, in the, in the valley, valley there, the Kidron Valley, there was basically a dark garbage dump 
that at one time, back in the day of the kings, was used to sacrifice babies. They stopped that, thank goodness, and they turned it into a garbage heap that burned all the time. It burned constantly. And Jesus is like, you know how bad it is in Gehenna? That constant burning, that nasty smell, that de- smell of death all the time? The hell is like. If you murder somebody with your words, you're in danger of going to a place like that. So be careful with your words. Right, Revelation 20 talks about this. Revelation 22. You have this picture of the celestial city. New Jerusalem is given to us. This beautiful, beautiful city. But there's people outside the city who can't go in the city. Who is that? John says, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city heaven. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers. And so Jesus tells us the kind of murderers that won't enter into the celestial city aren't necessarily those who literally took the life of somebody, but those who had hatred in their heart. So as you consider the heart issue, dealing with anger in your heart requires a new heart, right? We all struggle with this, all of us. All of us struggle with anger in our heart that leads us to thoughts of the death of another person. And so we have to have a new heart and a new way of thinking if we're going to to obey this commandment as Jesus has called us to obey it. A new heart, a heart like Jesus, a kingdom heart. And so this morning, if you think about your life, you're thinking about the hatred that you have had in your heart for other people and that it keeps coming back and you can't deal with it, then maybe you need a new heart from Jesus Christ. Jesus says you must be born again. Being born again is being regenerated, is being made a new person spiritually, is being given that new heart. And as I said before, God's not stingy. If you truly are coming to him in faith, desiring to change, desiring to repent, desiring the heart that will give you the obedience that is being called for here, this crowd's going to give it to you. He's not stingy. But it also requires a new way of thinking. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. As you look out of the world and you're trying to deal with anger, you have to start at the foundation of what the problem is. How do you view the world? Right? If, I, if I speak of anger as a negative response of the heart to the fact that a standard has not been met, Let's go with a very basic driving down I-94 example, because that's easy. You have a standard in your mind of how everybody should drive when you're going down I-94. That means they should always let you switch lanes when you want to switch lanes. Nobody should pass you real fast. People shouldn't go too slow in front of you. People shouldn't be looking on their phone next to you. You have all these standards, okay? And when that's not being met, you have this negative internal response in your heart. It's called anger. And you look at that person, right? And hopefully you're not giving them hand signals. Hopefully you're not swerving towards them. Hopefully you have good thoughts about them, right? But as you view other people in the world, you're like, you're such an idiot. Who would ever drive like that? Where'd you get your license? Hamtramck? But as we look out at the world and we consider our standards for the world, Paul says, who are we to judge the world? We didn't judge each other, okay, guys? Who are we to judge the world? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have standards for people around us. Now that, I mean, there's a law, okay, but you're not the law. 
I'm going to confess right now. I actually followed a guy through Hamtramck because he made me mad. He passed me on Talbot because I was going over the speed bump too slow. My wife was with me. She's like, Jay, what are you doing? What are you doing, Jay? Uh, I, I'm going to go after this guy. <laughs> like, what was I going to do? But, but we've all been there, right? And I, I thought, this, this guy, what a waste of a car and a waste of air. But we're called to look out of the world like Jesus does. He looks out of the world with compassion. We live in a world cursed by sin, devastated by sin. People are darkened in their understanding. People, people are blinded to the truth. They have their moral compass is all off because of sin. And we expect them to follow the rules? Oh yeah, and they're creating the image of God. James uses that in James chapter 3 when he's talking about how we use your words. You're speaking that way to somebody created in the image of God. And yes, the people on I-94 near I-10 at Wayne State are creating the image of God. And they're people for whom Christ would die. So if we can recalibrate our thinking with this new heart that's been given to us and the power of the Holy Spirit and see the world like Jesus sees the world, it's going to help us with this problem. Very practical thing, I believe. Next, Jesus moves to the commands, right? He's saying, look, I'm going to clarify you have anger in your heart, and it's shown by your words. Watch out. Judgment is in store for you. He wants to give us a couple of commands. Help us to think through how we need to live in the world. I would say it's peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're going to inherit the earth. Peacemaking is important. Reconciliation is important. And that's where he goes next. He says, look. When there's anger between people in the body of Christ, between brothers and sisters, you need to hurry up and reconcile. It's urgent that you reconcile for the good of God's people. Reconciliation is a process involving a change of attitude that leads to a change in relationship. We'll go back up here. There we go. More specifically, to be reconciled means to replace hostility and separation with peace and friendship. Right? So as we look at the grand themes of the Bible, as we look at the, the, the macro story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and the redemptive history, we could say it's a history of reconciliation. Right? Adam and Eve, were, they were at peace with God. They had a, a vital relationship with God, but they rebelled against God and they sinned. And in the moment they sinned, they were separated from God by their sin. And there was hostility between God and them and them and God. The relationship was broken. And the story of history is God sending his Messiah to remove that wrath and that hostility through his death on the cross by taking our sins away and satisfying the wrath of God. Jesus died to reconcile God to man and man to God. It's a story of redemption. So it's a big deal to God. You were enmity with me, you were hostile towards me, and I sent my son to die on the cross to take your sins away so that you could have a right relationship with me, and you won't forgive your brother or sister, and you have hatred in your heart such that you want to murder them? Really? So Jesus moves on to reconciliation. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. 
and then come and offer your gifts. So Jesus plays a very high priority on reconciliation here. But it's not like they were heading off to the local soccer match and, and you know, they're kind of doing their thing and forgetting that they, they had a, a broken relationship. No, they're on their way to the temple to offer a sacrifice. God, I thank you for the forgiveness that I have through faith as I offer this sacrifice that I can be right with you. I don't care about other people, but I want to be right with you. Jesus says, no, don't you see the contradiction in your life? If you're going to offer a sacrifice to God and you are at enmity or, or you have a broken relationship with somebody else and you won't forgive them and there's anger in your heart, no. To obey is better than sacrifice, Jesus says. He places a high priority on reconciliation. And so the next point to ponder is that a failure to prioritize reconciliation with others may be an indicator that you have not truly been reconciled to your Father in heaven. If you can exist in this world with broken relationships and you have no problem with it, then what does that say about your view of what God did to reconcile you to him? Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but God now has reconciled you to, by Christ's physical body through his death to present you holy in his sight without blemish or free from accusation. Reconciliation is a huge priority to God. It needs to be a priority to us in a failure to reconcile with others to let that anger and hatred just, just well up in you is an indicator that you may not have the new heart given to you by Christ. And Christ says you need to deal with that because judgment is coming. So Jesus gives a high priority to reconciliation, but he also gives an urgency to reconciliation. Don't mess around. Time is short. You don't know how much time that you have. Jesus says what? Settle the matter quickly. Settle the matter quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Don't wait. Act unilaterally. Aren't you so glad that God didn't wait for you to act? No, God acted first. There's an urgency there. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. So you need to make things right, quickly. Because a failure to reconcile quickly can lead to greater trouble in the future, right? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, they say. Whoever they is, whoever said that, Ben Franklin, I don't know. Ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure, right? If you handle the matter now, then it's going to keep the problem small, right? When we went through peacemakers and we talked about you know, the issue of, of, of conflict in relationships, if you put the fire out while it's small, it doesn't do much damage. But if you let the fire grow, then it can cause a lot more damage. So reconcile quickly. And that's what Jesus is saying here as well. And within the body of Christ, this is so important because the failure to reconcile will lead to bitterness, which will bleed into other relationships, further damaging the body of Christ when unreconciled relationships exist within the body of Christ because you have anger in your heart towards a person, you have envy, you have greed, you have whatever, 
Okay, there's going to be bitterness, and it's going to bleed into other relationships, and it's going to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. And friends, unity is a big deal to Jesus. The author of Hebrews, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This unity in the body of Christ because of fractured or broken relationships, because people have hatred, anger in their hearts, is displeasing to God. Read Proverbs chapter 6 about the abominations that God hates. In the very end, he finishes with dissension within God's people caused by unreconciled relationships. It damages the body of Christ. So Christ says, make a priority of reconciliation. There's an urgency to reconciliation. Reconcile quickly for your sake and for the sake of the body of Christ. So as we conclude things, what I want to do is we go through the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And I've said this, being salt and light is, is obeying the teachings of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it is in its most basic form. And so I want you to be what you are. You are salt and light. Now be salt and light. And so as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to have this point at the end, where I'm going to do the points to ponder along the way. But I want you to be who you are. And, and certainly there's a lot more I could say than what I'm going to say, but I have two points here about being salt and light that I think you'll find go hand in hand with this particular passage. Being salt and light requires that I intentionally and carefully guard what goes into my heart. Right? Out of the heart flow the issues of life. Jesus says the heart is the issue. Out of the heart, out of the mouth flow the, uh, is the overflow of the heart. And so we have to be careful about what goes into our heart. Psalmist says, above all, guard your heart. Remember the very first point about confusion you know, over authority. Now, how much time do you spend filling your mind and your heart with confusing information from people who aren't even bringing their argument directly from the Word of God? All the podcasts, all the vlogs, all the blogs, all the influencers. You are what you eat. That is true physically, but it's true mentally. And if you're filling your mind with misinformation all day, then what's that going to do to your heart? Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. See how he links the heart and the mouth there in this proverb? Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. So being salt and light means that we have to guard what, what goes into our heart, but we also have to guard what comes out of our mouth. Our words are so powerful. In a multitude of words, sin is not far behind. James 1.26, those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves. Right? Because what you say reveals what's in your heart. And Jesus says, if your heart is a hateful, murderous heart, then sooner or later it's going to reveal itself through your words. You won't be able to keep a, a rein on it. You may think you're 
super spiritual. You may think you have all your spiritual, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed. You do your devotions every day. You've got all that going on. But if you're hanging on to hatred and bitterness in your heart, it will come out. You won't be able to keep a rein on it. But James says, those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So as to consider this first of the commandments that Jesus is going to address in the Sermon on the Mount, I think the point that's being made is that our failure to keep the most basic of God's commands, right? Jesus says, look, you think you got murder under control? Don't murder. I've got murder under control. Oh, really? You think you have murder under control? Let's talk about your heart. Let's talk about how you relate to other people in the world and in those people closest to you. Because your righteous needs to exceed that of the Pharisees if you want to enter the kingdom of God. And we can't do that apart from the new heart that only Jesus can give. So let's give thanks to Jesus for what he's done in our lives and giving us a new heart. And the fact that as he calls us to a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, that we can do that through the power that he gives us. Amen? All right. I'm so thankful for this time that we've had together. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing a song together. And Sam is going to do the missions time. And then Sam is going to call John up. We're going to pray for John and then welcome John into fellowship, okay? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the truth of Jesus' words from this text. Lord, I pray that um, you would work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. You've made that promise that your spirit would come to live within us, and he does, and that he would enable us to obey your commands. The new covenant comes with the ministry of life given by the Spirit so that we can obey. So Lord, help us never to fall prey to despair as we consider our relationships and our words. Father, you're so much greater than the circumstances in our lives. You're so much greater than the broken relationships in our lives. And Father, I pray now amongst the people that are in this room, if there are broken relationships, that you would move people towards reconciliation. If there is hatred seething in the heart of anyone here this morning, I pray that they would give that over to you now, that you would take that from them, that you would cause them to be filled with love instead, and that that would radiate into the relationships around them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.